always I don't remember to hit the record button very often. Sometimes I do. Well, I'm like I'm like 62 for 60 on pushing that button. That's pretty good. And then the other one time was in failure to fire, and the other one was me because I pressed it once yesterday. No, uh, I forgot it once when we called Cortina. I also forgot it once when we were talking to. Uh, we were talking about Austin. the AG Cup. Had to be Austin or Ben. No. Or was it just us talking about it? It was just us talking. Okay. So it was only twice. Yeah, so, so that means 60 out of 63. No, no, I don't remember. It's a relatively high percentage that it's I remember to push good. record. That's pro level. <laughs> it's pro level recording. Yep. <laughs> well, it's mid-pack if you're a recording studio artist, I'm sure. <laughs> it's probably a bottom of the barrel. You, does it ever make you wonder how many like great songs were never actually recorded when they started? Is that like impossible to have it happen? Um, no, I I am sure that really really good takes of a solo or something like that like were not recorded Um, because with modern recording now most of it's digital so um, you can play back or you can record while playing back and I'm sure it's pretty easy to just say hey for the guy to say hey play me back that real quick and then the guy the engineer to push the playback button and they do that a few times and then he's like all right I'm ready and then instead of pushing the record button, he pushes the playback button, and the guy lays down the nastiest, gnarliest solo, and then it's not recorded. Ooh, that would guaranteed. That happens. would be bad. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Are you guys not on? You guys weren't spotting? What the heck? What the heck? And you got to reshoot. All right. Well, we should have been watching. Let's catch up. Impacts. Let's do some more um, user review, user questions. The gosh, I user. said it again. Listener <laughs> questions. Listener. This is because I've been trained when people use Kestrels, they or a B software, they they ask us things. So then I go because they are users. Yeah, they're users, not listeners. Yep. Well, they're kind of listeners too because they have, we have a podcast over there. So oh yeah yeah check um, that out. Yep, I've been on there a couple times. It's pretty cool. Three times I think. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's see. Where were we at? There, I'm scrolling back up. Uh, we left off with Joe. Okay, so Taran uh, Taranaki Long Range Shooting wants to know, love the episode. Love to hear more on Rimfire as cheap fundamentals practice as a standalone sport. Possibly interview some NRL PRS22 competitors. Cool, that's a good idea. Um, we'll, quick one we can touch on it really fast is the like, Rimfire for practice, and I mean really fast. <clears throat> we did talk about that in one of our really early episodes, what we like and don't like about different calibers and stuff, but um, we'll look to see if we can get some NRL and PRS-22 shooters on the podcast. I think that would be good. Yeah. Let's see how they cross over between, you know, the elite of their sport um, and the elite of our sport. Like, there's a lot of similarities, I'm sure. Actually, I know for a fact there are. Um, but that said, uh, rimfire for practice. <sighs> so fundamentals with a PRS centerfire rifle, all of them have effectively the same fundamentals. However, the stress on the system from a centerfire rifle is derived from the recoil and handling of the recoil, along with all the things that it can unconsciously train into you or you have to work to not have trained into you, i.e. flinching or anticipation or follow through because of how much recoil impulse there is, uh, twisting the bag and having it react more violently. Um, while rimfires have a longer dwell time in the barrel, so it does mean you have to follow through, I would argue, longer than with a centerfire. Um, the centerfire reactions to mismanipulation of your fundamentals are far more violent 
you, you go way off target very quickly. Whereas a rimfire, I mean, pew, and it's just you're still sitting on the target. If it I think moves the, two tenths, the timing it's a thing lot. is interesting to me because, like you said, the bullet is in the barrel roughly three times. approximately three times as long, but the recoil impulse isn't as violent, so it doesn't expose as much of the fundamentals, or does it? I, I don't know. It, I think it exposes different portions of the fundamentals. Okay. Meaning if you have a wobble zone, the rimfire can appear to have more, you know, you can get increased angular dispersion and all that, but it also has inherent flaws. It's not as precise as a centerfire. Um, yeah, and it's yeah. hard to dissect which... Yeah, and you don't make your own factor. ammo. Like, yeah. I can test different types of ammo with a rimfire, but I can't control that ammo short of just buying a lot well, this is a, a lot of that lot or a lot of that brand with a specific lot that shoots really well. So that's a that's an inherent problem because I know with mine I can select the components that work well. Um, once I've selected them and make them, I can control the process by which they're made. So therefore, I can test them and make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to. But the inherent precision of you know my centerfire rifle and your centerfire rifle, they're generally in like the 0.3 to 0.4 MOA range on average at the at really at most the the a big like you know two to three times that so you shoot groups down in the ones all the way up to like a half inch uh, half moa or half inch at 100 yards approximately when or rimfire on the other hand you know you're so show me somebody who shoots every single group in the point twos point threes with our style rifles and our conditions and i would be blown away i've never seen that not for like dozens of groups um but it could exist i just haven't seen it yet um that said, I, I think the that is one of the constraints. What you see with a rimfire when you see a, because they're more wind sensitive, um, you see one to two MOA groups relatively frequently at moderate distances that we would never see those types of groups with, like, honestly, even a one MOA group at four to 500 yards is pretty big. So, but the equivalent for a 22 at 200 yards or like 150 to 200 yards that's kind of hard to do, achieve regularly, like no matter what, like a one MOA target, always hitting a one MOA target. You can't really do that with a rimfire. Yeah. So I, I really love shooting the rimfire and honestly, ring and steel is ring and steel. Sometimes it just gives you that hit of dopamine yep. to the brain. So I'm not trying to discount it, but I just, I struggle finding, not finding the benefit. I struggle weighing the benefits of it because it's hard to segregate the the inherent precision from your learning and building of the fundamentals mm-hmm. it's just hard hard to do and and the wind uncertainty yep so you put those three things together and it's like what are you really trying to what is the biggest thing that you're trying to work on Correct. and i really believe that your fundamentals need to be sound on the center fire and on the rim fire side so What's the best way to build those fundamentals? And I feel like dry fire allows you to build that yeah. as good, the fundamentals portion of it. Yep. You can build it as good with dry fire. You just don't get the wind and the live fire experience. But if you don't have the fundamentals, then you can't trust your wind learning on the rifle anyway. Mm-hmm. So, and vice versa. It's hard to trust right. your, you know, your wind. If your wind skills are, you know, not very good and your fundamentals are excellent and you don't know that it's the wind skill you're lacking you can't trust what you're seeing on your wind so it becomes a very difficult system to have high resolution as to what the root cause is yep 
that's a, that's the problem. Yeah. But, so if you haven't listened to that episode, the, the person that asked that question, you can go back and listen to the the dry fire versus live fire episode. We do go through, um, you know, heavier calibers, match calibers, twenty two, and dry fire, and kind of just talk through the benefits of all those, and they definitely all have their place and their merit. Yep, I would agree. Um, next, Ruben, what's up, Ruben? Ruben Quijada wants to know: Can you debunk the AW mag myths? There seems to be a popular; they seem to be popular out west, and information is. Sorry, my phone's a little weird on brightness. Is confusing. Some say you can't run them on a two lug. While I see many shooters doing exactly that, some say you run AW. You can't run AICS. What's the truth? So Man, you I, love AW mags. <laughs> you you posted that. I see that's the response that you. So I think it. it did it come through as a miles to matches response. Yes, it did. Okay, yeah. I think I put my last you name did. there just in that's case. That's all I know because I wouldn't say anything about it. Yeah, um, I don't run them. So I guess let me ask you the question: What is? Have you heard of this myth? Because I had not heard of it. Um, I had not either. I think I understand why the myth starts, and I, but I don't know the real cause. I mean, the three lugs have a different geometry when the lugs coming back, but I don't understand three lugs well enough because I've never owned one. So, right, but you, but you don't run. AW Max. I don't. Uh, that's just because my action has not been cut for them, so I oh, know that okay, they won't okay. function. If okay. I had had Tate flare them open, I'd be fine. But I well, I did see a AW post. Cut. I did see a post that he made in the last month or so that said, "Now, from now forward, all of his 737s ours hmm. will be AW compatible." I'll just have to give him a call then. Yeah. So um, I know he can. And I'm not trying to get him to do work he doesn't want to do, but I know he said in the past that he could open up to an AW cut. I don't know if yeah. he still does that. But the, you might be right. Those that. things aside, um, there, his question was specifically to saying, debunk the myth that AW doesn't work with two lug, and I don't, I don't, I never heard that. Um, I use AW and I run a two lug Lone Peak Fusion, so I really don't, I haven't heard that they won't work. I know there's people that say all sorts of mags don't work for all sorts of reasons. If a magazine fits into the um, the cutout. Of, yep. of the action, then it will work. You can make yeah. it work. Um, I I love and prefer AW mags personally for a few reasons, and I'll tell you why. Uh, we were just talking about this offline. Um, one of we were talking about it because like one of my post stage routines is like go straight to my match bag. Oh yeah. Uh, first of all, cover my rifle. Go straight to my match bag and load my magazine. It's kind of like my meditation wind down. Um, and it's something that I do kind of subconsciously and it just happens. And if I've had a bad stage, it helps me calm down. If I've had a good stage, I'm amped up. It helps me calm down. And I know I can start thinking about the next stage as soon as my mag's loaded. They load really easy. You just push straight down. None of that, like pushing down the round and then try to weasel this one in from the side or using some mag assist. Like it just, you just push straight down and it goes in there. It's so easy to load. Yep. Um, then the second benefit is you can count the rounds. Just look down in the magazine. It's a double-stacked magazine. You can count five on the left, five on the right. Um, the next thing I love about them is they don't stick out of the magwell very far. So if you're on a rock, a flat-top table, anything like that, you just throw your bag down and your rifle on the forend, and your magazine does not hit anything below it. Um, you could interact with your grip, but even if your grip is interacting with the prop, 
the fact that your mag is not means you can slide forward farther if you want to without yep. hitting anything. The biggest ones are tires, like rocks and tires, but yep. tires are like you. They're known for this. Those big round tractor tires, when you got to get up on top and you set your bag in the lugs, you think you have enough clearance, and as soon as you settle it, you'll like those angled lugs will be in just the right place for you to not be able to get your mag not touching the tire. Well, I don't know so if you'll the, agree with me on this, but um, whenever I see somebody with their mag touching a prop. I can predict that they're going to miss. I am I'm 50-50 on that. Yeah, I, I'm I think, more than 50-50. I think that it can be executed with proper fundamentals. Harder. It's harder. So if I ever feel anything weird, like hard on hard contact when I know I'm on a bag, then I pause. Um, and more often than not, I see magazines touching props, and it causes the shooter to bear down or preload it in a way that under recoil, it um, causes them to go not where they intended the shot to go. Yep. Cost me three or four points last season, for sure. Okay. I, can, I remember them distinctly. And then, I guess the fourth reason I like them is because the rounds seem to strip real easy. But, man, if you get an AI CS mag tuned properly, those strip easy, too. So, well, that's, that's kind was, of like a non-issue. That's what I was going to say, is that, you know, talking about AW mags um, and AI CS... And AICS is a double stack single feed. AW is a double stack double feed, right? So double stack double feed, strips off the left, strips off the right of the mag, strips off the left, strips off the right. Whereas the double stack single goes, you know, stacks up from the bottom. They're yeah. staggered. And then there's only one place for the bullet to be. So my preference is that for this, specifically this reason, by having rounds be exactly in the same spot every single time with one, you know, all of my mags get tested, but they're always stripping from the exact same spot. I find them to be easier to tune. The one of the, the hardest part portions to tune is the vertical pitch angle of the round in the mag, but the rear height of that round is always in the same spot. So if you think about the interference of how a round would have to get stripped off of a mag, you put it on the left corner or the right corner where it's you're angling it up one side, you have to tune two lips to make sure that sort of the edge of the round is at the appropriate amount of clearance or call it interference with the bolt as it's coming forward to make sure it pushes that the mag can't drop away they can't override it um, or if they're any wider than they need to get too much then they can pop out under a big impact um, i've seen that happen when someone drops an aw mag on the ground and they shoot the sort of stream of projectiles coming out of their mag um, I don't have that with AWs because they are... You mean AICS? AIS, AIS, yeah, AICS. Just because they're generally tighter and they still allow clearance to the middle of the bolt face where I get the most engagement. So I've had that... I found that to be preferable. It also means every single round hits the exact same point on the feed ramp. It goes straight up and it comes in the same way, never from the well, left. Well, I know right. you find it to be preferable, but I'm going to call you out and say that you don't have any experience with AWs. Exactly. So, so I, the only thing I would say is the... <laughs> The, I find it preferable only in the sense that I think I ran one of yours once. It didn't work. I find it. <laughs> it fat. It fit. It just didn't feed. Um, so that, that was not fun. But I like the idea that all of my mags are going to be the same. The MDT 12 rounders are not a whole, The 10-rounder is actually nearly an AWS uh, height, height wise, I do yeah, agree. Really Those are close. sweet. Yeah, um, it's right between a normal AI mag and, and the uh, AW. Yeah, as far as height wise, the goes. 12 rounder is a size or a little over 12 to 13 is actually even uh, just a little bit longer than that. It's barely anything. So I, I found those as a good compromise. Once I switched to those from a standard AICS magazine, um, I haven't. Cool. 
I haven't found it. Yeah, I'm just not a big fan of the extensions on the 10, 12. I hate those. That's why I use Dude, it, it sticks down yeah. so far. Um, yeah, it's just a pain. Yeah. So, but, but I will say, I guess I'm not trying to keep talking about mags, but this is like a super, super important topic. And whatever mag you have, you need to test it in all your conditions. You, you, yep. you need to be accountable for it. And I think either mag works great as long as your action is cut for it. I'm pretty sure the GA uh, Tempest actions can only use AW mags. Is that true? Don't know. Okay. The bad thing about AW mags is they only make 10 rounders, but 10 rounder is my primary and um, is an AW mag. And maybe it just maybe I have the greatest mag on the planet, but it just doesn't it doesn't give me a problem. I'm um, glad you found one. Yeah, I got I got four of them. So that's good. You found four. <clears throat> um, so mags. Daniel Sherbert wants to know goal setting, especially for someone who is mid pack. Obviously, we all know uh, your guys' goals. You guys' goals are, but not all of us are at that level yet. I don't uh, think they all know I'm what not, our goals are. No, I don't think they do either. You know, I'm not trying to win every match that I shoot uh, or hit every target. Uh, I am, but it's, but realistically, what should I shoot for and be happy with? Ooh, this is a big question. Um, we definitely want to take. So we we actually have set. We were trying to set a goal setting episode. Uh, we just failed on that goal. So we. <laughs> I think the yeah, I agree. I think the goal setting is different for everyone. So I guess. He made an assumption that he knows our goals, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't. Um, yeah. And our goals are different between you and I. I mean, they're pretty similar, and there's they align in a lot of ways. But I think um, it's a valid question how to set goals. And I don't think it's as simple as, you know, a, a five-minute answer. No, I don't. I definitely want to address this one more distinctly in the future. But there is one point of this um, that maybe I want to hit now. Um, you know, not that I'm trying to win every match that I shoot or hit every target. So I, I agree that, you know, the realistic and versus unrealistic expectation is a part of goal setting. Not trying to win a match if you haven't win, you know, won a match yet is different than saying, like, I'm just starting. I haven't even shot a match and I want to win a match. That would be an unrealistic goal. Um, if you're in the top five and you're winning a match, then I actually think winning every match is a realistic goal if you're constantly in the top five just push for it that's a stretch goal but not hitting every target that is a goal that again setting expectations you have to find ways of setting a smart goal i would always say i i want to set a goal to hit every single target even if it's only on a stage but you know saying i'm i don't want to anytime you say i'm not capable of doing something you're you're probably going to be right yeah yeah so be really cautious when you say what you're not capable of that is a really dangerous point to put your your perspective on things as you go into goal setting as you go into your you know a stage or anything really so but we're going to do an entire episode on this we will do it it has been requested by multiple people and i think it's a really critical topic for us it's worked really well for us in the past and uh, i think a lot of the listeners would, would also benefit from trying to find some cool goals all right we already did lynn's Kyle Marsh wants to know, how do you catch wind shifts on the clock? Um, so it's a little known fact that we actually have spotters downrange with anemometers. Yep. All pros do. And I think, you were, I think you were saying about how you, you could... If you taste, you you can taste could, the wind. Yes. yes. Yeah, if you, so if you're on a clock, if you stick your tongue out just a little, just wiggle it, you get different flavors, and you can actually tell exactly what forecast. the wind is about to forecast. do yeah. by just 
flicking the tongue. Um, now we're obviously joking, but we. Uh, so this is a really good question. Uh, we can talk through some of the things that we've done um, in the past, but catching wind shifts. There's a couple of ways that I think you can let's call it high level ways you can catch a wind shift. One, you just shot around the hit with really good fundamentals. You watch it hit center. You send another and it hits. You send another and it hits. You go to the same. You do the exact same thing and it misses. There's a pretty good chance that something changed in the wind if you're not changed anything in your system. I think he's saying though before you make that miss. Well, that was, I'm saying that was part one. And okay. That's not catching the shift. Right. That's not preemptive. That's, that's not catching reactive. it, but that's it's reactive. Pro, that's reactive. The proactive way is really difficult, and there are some really good shooters who do it. We try to keep, be aware of it, but candidly, we're the wind shift happens. Most winds occur just slow enough that you'll see yourself moving towards an edge of a target. This is a product of how big our targets are, relatively speaking. You'll move from one side of a plate or middle of a plate to an edge of a plate in in subsequent shots. Not enough to put you off the plate, but knowing that it's changing or has changed some amount, you're hedging your bet as to what the next change will be. So you have to react to that. And then the next step will be slightly more proactive to be very mindful okay what just changed so let's just put an example hit center then the next shot on the same target hits hard left edge i'm going to look at the dust that came off the first shot as it's hitting and say okay it came off at this speed and it was kind of floating up in the next shot i might see it's hard left edge and it floats off more laterally that means that i'm probably a going about to have another wind shift and if i'm going to a new distance i'm about to change my wind call or my wind plan just a little bit going into the next to hedge my bet and i'm also really going to pay attention to the vegetation around the target that i've shot and the vegetation around the target i'm about to shoot Um, plus if i have a second which i did multiple times at the last few matches between the finale the ag cup um, frostbite and some other matches recently i'm looking between shots at nearby wind flags like stop and look at the flag because i'll be paying attention to those on the line uh, while I'm looking at the targets to make sure I can get a an indication of what I see downrange for, say, dust or splash or spall from a, our stage and maybe adjacent stages and correlate that to what I see on a flag. And as I see something change, I'm immediately looking at this flag to go, what's the flag doing? Okay, it just went away from us and all the dust is like going up. And then I see the dust start going hard left and I look up and this flag is going hard left. Okay, if I see that enough, I know that that's a good indicator of something to come. So I may, as I'm transitioning, going from stage part, you know, position one to position two, glance at that flag to see if it's still in the same location that it was as I ended that position. And there's a couple other techniques, but I'll let you talk about yours too. Yeah, so I've liked a lot of what you said there. Honestly, I thought it was awesome. Um, the first thing I'll say is knowing the potential for wind shifts before you get to the range that day. Um, looking at windy.com or some other similar wind-related app to see the timeline of the wind for that day forecasted and say, okay, yeah. when I get there, it's a five mile an hour out of the southwest. And at some time between 11 and noon, it's forecasted to shift to the south, and then it's going to be a south by southwest wind instead of a south by southeast wind that we started with. And that's valuable information because you know when you switch from a 430 wind to a 730 wind then you have drastically different wind holds there's honestly not a lot of matches that have that happen in the course of the day so that comes back to 
your very first statement where you said, you shoot a target with known good fundamentals and you hit the target and then you do the same thing and you hit the target and you do the same thing and you miss the target. The bullet point that I'm going to pull out of there is that you know you had good fundamentals. Yep. If you can't remember following through and holding down that trigger or you can't remember exhaling or it's not so naturally ingrained in your process that you can count on it happening, then you honestly could be thinking that your wind is shifting when it's not. And I know we've said this before, and I'm not trying to make accusations of your abilities. Kyle, I know who you are. I've shot with you before. You're, you're a badass shooter. Um, I think you're looking for some gold nuggets, and um, all I'm trying to say is, for the rest of the listeners out there, look inward and make sure that your shot was sent perfectly first. Make it a hundred percent shot. And those, those are how. That's how you learn to read the wind, in my opinion, by sending perfect yeah. shots every single time in these conditions that are difficult. You got to shoot in conditions that are difficult, but you also have to make perfect shots. And you will learn, and you will learn to see it. And then the third bullet point, I'll say that it pulled out and from yours, and it was spot on. You need to be looking for, on those days when you suspect that there's going to be a change, you need to be looking for indicators ahead of time. We've, we've seen matches with uh, streamer, little stakes with streamers. Sometimes they'll be on the same stake as the target yep, or near a, a target. Or you can use a target that's adjacent or mid-range to the target that you're shooting that some other stage is shooting and say, hey, the dust coming off there, um, most of the time it's ripping, you know. It's, it's cruising across pretty good, and I'm estimating, you know, a, a 7 to 10 mile an hour. And then when you get up to shoot, you see an impact, and the dust is drifting at half that speed coming off that target. You say, oh, wow, I better dial it down a couple tenths. Yep. Um, so if you're looking for, like, future forecasting, um, wind is the best guess. So use probability to put your, your best guess at the center of the plate. Watch where you're hitting on plates and use some other indicators, whether it's mirage or targets, spall from another target or flags uh, or vegetation or something like that. A lot of matches now have sponsor flags, and they're not really flags. They're just these giant, like, wave-shaped signs, right? Yeah. Those things are pivoting on. Yeah. I think they're pivoting on, like, a post with a sleeve so they can pivot with the yeah, wind. Yeah, they have sleeved bearings usually, but yeah, they're they're on bearings of some sort, like a slip bearing or a um, small rotary bearing. Yeah, and yeah. they don't give a perfect indication of the, the wind intensity because they're already stretched with a frame in the vertical, you know, yep. vertical condition so you can read the banner, but they're pretty good at direction, and they're usually always down the firing line, straight down the firing line. Um, and so if you're shooting a stage and you look over before you start the stage and all those flags give you a certain width of exposure, and I don't know if I'm describing this right, but imagine they're flying perfectly 90 degrees to you and they're going to look like a line. And then um, if they start to give angle, then you will you will see a width of exposure. And you can just start to compare that to when other people shot or when yeah. you took a wind reading with your Kestrel. And you can know, hey, either the direction, you know, opened up or closed off. And those are good indicators because we know that um, depending on the wind intensity, sometimes the direction is far more important than actual, you know, is the wind gusting right now? Because what you're feeling is a gust might be negated or, yeah. or softened by 
an average that the bullet will see across its yeah. path. You Another know? way of saying that is if a gust is at 6 o'clock, does it matter? No, it doesn't. If a gust is at 12 o'clock, does it matter? No. It could go from 0 to 100 miles an hour at exactly 6, and we would not see a difference. Well, that's not exactly true, but it's pretty close. <laughs> yeah. um, but it can go an like, extreme amount that we would normally not care about. But if it goes you know, from 6 to 6.30... Um, it becomes a substantial amount. If it goes from 6.30 back to 5.30, it's a substantial amount. Whereas the the intensity of the wind at five, you know, 3 o'clock or 9 o'clock, uh, if it's 10 miles an hour versus 15, that's a substantial amount. So uh, the point being, the other, yet one of the other things that to point out is this is not a process that you can undertake to be, quote, proactive or reading the wind. It's, t- it's very quick. There is no shortcut that I have found yet that will help you learn this skill quickly. This is something that you do over time by just actively looking at things around you, trying not to make big assumptions like, oh, the wind's going to change. Like you have to just like, look at a flag, look at a result. And that applies, honestly, likely to that range only in a lot of cases. Yeah. If it's wide open, then, yeah, it's probably fairly consistent but every terrain and every you know feature on that range will have an effect. So you have to learn that range as quickly as possible. So don't expect it to be a once-and-done type of approach. Yeah, I will say habit. from my perspective to conclude all the stuff I have to provide <laughs> the answer, in the answer yeah. to this question, I'll say that I think for me there's always a lag in my ability to keep up with the wind for me. So... All I can expect or shoot for for my personal experience and my personal growth is to reduce that lag. So I would That's a great I, way of saying I want to keep up with it, but I'm realistic enough to say that um, keeping up with it to the second doesn't matter uh, as much as not ignoring <laughs> not ignoring it when it's been 30 seconds past, you know, and it's still intensifying or still dropping off. So. Uh, I'm more in tune with it than I ever was, but I'm I'm not perfect with it. So if you can just decide what level you're at and then move the needle to producing your response or lag response to that, um, then you're moving moving it in the right direction. Yep. Good question, man. Um, ooh, our boy Dan Shanebrook. Good one. Uh, what's up, Dan? Always wanted to ask you guys what books you have read that you have found to be particularly helpful uh, or made motivational in sport or or in life. Um, after listening to a few topics, I'd be curious if you stumbled across some of the great titles I've found. Might be a long one, though. I could go for hours talking about great audiobooks. Um, man, that's a great question. There's a couple, I mean, shooting-related, a couple that come to my mind anyway. Uh, shooting-related, the uh, Dan- Lanny Basham's With, With Winning, winning in, mind. in Mind. Yeah, That is obviously kind of a must-read if you're in the shooting sports. Um, in the golf world, um, golf is not a game of perfect that is by Dr. Bob Rotella, if I recall correctly. Uh, and then an, that's another one that's great. It's not sports. It's sports related, but it's a mindset book that you should definitely check out. Um, <clears throat> on top of that, one that is not uh, in either of those categories, but it is is uh, Thin Slicing um, by Malcolm Gladwell. I believe that's correct. But Thin Slicing uh, by Malcolm Gladwell, or no, bl- I'm sorry, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell not thin slicing it's the thin slicing is the concept that he talks about inside of that book but um those three books to me are are important because i use the the thin slicing concept is one that's i I just have to kind of skim it effectively 
using your gut instinct can be very right very often if you train that skill. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's right all the time, but it, you, uh, there are some really cool examples and good anecdotes. Um, the Golf is Not a Game of Perfect is an expectations management slash mindset management book, much like Lanny Basham's. Lanny's is much more focused on process. Um, Golf is Not a Game of Perfect is more about you know people making mistakes and how do you kind of work through them but ex- have good expectations without falling into the traps of perfection, so to speak. You want to strive for it but not be disappointed when it doesn't occur. Really similar to how Lanny approaches the same similar or similar mindset. Um, There's another one that you told me about that I really like. I've read a couple times now at this point, and it's called Flow State. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, how to get into the flow state, what the flow state is, and uh, what are the benefits. Like, Wasn't it, it just called just, Flow? Uh, flow in Sports. Flow in Sports. Yeah, That's Flow right. in Sports. Um, I think it's a runner or wrote it or yeah. that was basically what they talked coach. about. Yeah, something like that. But it's uh, it's really good and. I think we've all had that experience when you kind of get in that zone and it just talks about triggers for different people. Everybody has their own trigger to get into that, uh, that state where you're just, you're not, you're not necessarily an autopilot. You're still aware, but, um, things are happening in your subconscious and you are performing at your peak performance with minimal effort. Um, another one that, uh, that I liked was, um, performing under pressure. I think it's called. Greg Bell sent me that one a while ago, and um, yeah, that one was had some pretty good bullet points for how to manage stress um, when you're really trying to get the best out of your performance. I like it. Um, what was there was one more I was going to mention. Oh, um, it's not actually a book on shooting or even specifically let's call it motivation, but it is on somewhat behavioral psychology Ooh. and economics and it's just, which sounds like a weird thing but economics of how we make decisions which is also a really interesting topic but it's um, by Dan O'Reilly uh, I believe that's A-R-E-I-L-L-Y um, he has two or three the first one in the series or in this first book was uh, Predictably Irrational which um, if anybody likes, you know, to understand how we do some of the weird things we do, that you, you, <laughs> the reason we'll go like, oh man, that gas is expensive. It's three seventy nine. We'll drive, you know, three three quarters of a mile <laughs> down to go find like three sixty nine. Yeah. But yet we go buy a, a TV at Best Buy for you know nine ninety nine when the same thing is at Walmart for say eight ninety nine. But we don't want to. We just want to buy it. That's a hundred dollar Delta. You'll get two dollars difference in gas. But it's a hundred dollars, and you wouldn't even drive a mile across town to save the hundred bucks. You won't even necessarily do the research. Or well, how about but, this one? Like, you you are so willing to take your pet to the vet, you know, to get their checkups, but you won't schedule your own, you know, physical annually yeah. and procrastinate on that. Like, <laughs> yeah, take and, care of yourself, man. And this plays out very much in precision rifle. In fact, yeah. it happened at a match. I heard, you know. It, I shouldn't say it happened at a match. It was some discussions, you know, when people talk about gear and we're like, oh, yeah, man, I got this rifle, blah, 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 right? It's, it's a six to $8,000 rifle. And then you have this other kit that you need. And you go, no, oh, no, I haven't bought one of those. It's too expensive. <laughs> You're talking about a $200 versus a $100 product. There's a $100 difference. 
that's going to make a drastic improvement or like an app or something else that might be 20 or 30 or $50 or buying a, like say a podcast or access to information or a book for this matter, you know, $20 that could have a lifelong impact on you for 20 to $50 versus something that we just spent, you know, five, three, five, seven, ten grand. And we might make stupid decisions on all those things. Hell, look at this. We spend 50 cents a bullet shooting him into the dirt. Mm-hmm. And yeah, well, mine don't go all in the dirt. Most no. of them go into the target. But. Wow! Eventually, they all hit the dirt. <laughs> but uh, I mean, that that concept in and of itself is an irrational behavior. You know, if you really break it down to brass tacks. But that book, Predictably Irrational by Dana Riley, is a really good one to understand your psychology, so you can question the decisions you make because that's a really important aspect of whether you are making the right decisions. Why am I making the decisions I'm making? Are they a good decision in the first place? And what did I really base that on? And they actually actually has some really. It's so he does it really really simply. It's not like a science read. It's a it's a fun read. He uses a bunch of examples in his own life and stories and some experiments they did that are told in like the way you'd have a beer with a buddy. So they're really cool. But that's all I got on books that I can think of off the top of my head while we're driving. So uh, let me go back to our episode. So good question, dude. Uh, Ryan Charlton. Preferred match snacks, and what are your go-to bag of morale comfort? I'm assuming he meant comfort foods, so morale comfort foods. Go. Go? You want me to go? Yep. Send it. I like things that don't upset my digestive system, um, which for some reason my, my system's fine with beef jerky and um, <laughs> almonds and cashews and stuff like that that are calorie and fat-rich stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are my go-tos because they're lightweight and calorie-dense. And then some type of an electrolyte um, additive that you can add with water. Um, I'll split it up these days between two different bottles of water. I like the, you know, I like the taste of them too, so it just reinforces that I drink more, hydrate better. Yeah, um, yeah those, are, those are my go-tos. Yep, mine are also... Okay, so match foods probably beef jerky is one, but I I don't know I'm I'm a little bit weird at matches I don't I tend not to eat very much I think I've talked about it in the past I try to not eat much of what's given to me with the exception of being the the what is it Jimmy's Johnny's is it Johnny's at K and M I don't know I forget the name of it the boxes, it's like a Jimmy John's it's knockoff. the boxes that we get it Len- Lenny's knockoff. it's Len- Lenny's. Lenny's. Lenny's and I'm telling you that's where Jimmy John's knocked off Lenny's it was the other way around <laughs> it's the same thing it's not the South South dare you you just like it because um, of the company that you're in the, and the place that you're in no that's part of it it's that stupid pepper relish is addictive yeah so at any rate the the Italian so comfort foods the Italian on white. With that pepper relish is a comfort food when I happen to be at K&M, which happens to be fairly regularly once or twice a year. Uh, that said, man, beef jerky is one. I do. I've kind of searched in and around for bars. I tend to like the kind bars, I think, when I need them. I, I do like a granola bar, soft, not crunchy. Um, and then in addition to that, I also do electrolytes. My electrolyte go-to is still uh, liquid IVs. Mm-hmm. I, I, Chad doesn't like the sugar or the salt and or the sugar. They're both pretty. It's high in kind of both of those, but I'm okay with that because of, well, I know I'm, re- I know I'm going to be spending salts. I don't mind having salts in my body because I actually get a pretty big kick of 
sugar to just keep my energy levels up without having to eat anything, and I don't want my stomach to feel full. That's something I'm really leery of. Uh, in my past sports and other things, I've noticed you know the more I eat, the more your body goes into sort of a digestive mode where it's trying to process foods and gets you sleepy, and kind of that tryptophan type kick where you feel a little groggy and a little out of it. Um, I try not to put myself into that state, and mm-hmm. I feel more attentive and more alert when I'm just on on it, just the good side of feeling hungry. Yep. So, yep. And uh, one of the things I always start my day off with on match days are uh, protein, banana. protein shake, and a banana. Banana. Yeah. Banana. Um, so, good question. Uh, comfort food, uh, probably Ben and Jerry's, but I haven't really done a lot of ice cream lately. So. I love kettle corn. You do, and that one you had with the like, what was it? it was well, it was kind of a, it was a little disappointing, but to be honest, but it was cheese corn and and caramel, caramel corn. Caramel yeah, corn. That's like a Chicago blend. This was called Detroit blend, so maybe that's why that, it was nasty. That might be. Yeah, but the kettle corn is definitely the kettle corn is the right corns. mix. Yeah, it's light, lightly sweetened and salty. If there was ever a corn that was supposed to be something else in life, it was kettle corn. It yeah. should have been named its own type of thing. Yeah, and why don't they Which have I, kettle corn at the movies? Like, why don't they have fresh dude, roast? That is a, we should start a movie theater that serves only kettle corn. Kettle corn. We would beer. have all the aficionados. Yeah. Aficionados. Not yeah, aficionados. I, I love those summer festivals yeah. or carnivals or whatever, and you can just go get fresh, gigantic bags that are as big as your torso. Yeah, of kettle that's corn. my favorite. Yep, at the apple orchard. Yep, with extra kettle. Yep. Um, good question. So, John David Van Orman wants to know... So this may sound redundant, but I don't think it is. With all the podcasts lately, including yours, um, about Kona Fire, average group size over time, time, tuners being questioned, Saturday load development method being too small a sample, etc., I'd like to hear practical load development options and how to settle on a load and what that even means or looks like. It just seems that a lot of the traditional methods that people have used forever have been devalued or nullified by science. I mean, this is a really good topic um, I think it's I very think interesting. Have, it is, and I think we have to talk about it. It's not going to cover the whole, you know, the whole subject, so to speak, because there's a ton to unpack when we talk about stats, how we hit targets, why we hit targets. But I think what you're saying is, in general, you know, if all this stuff is true, you need a lot of rounds. Like, how do you do this without spending a lot of money or burning on a lot of barrels? And I think we can answer that very quickly. Um, do you want me to take it, or do you want to take it? I don't know. I'll tell you what I think. Okay. Real that, quick. I like it. Don't I'll tell you my Don't name. stress about it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's you that was a pretty easy way to say it. Uh you said it actually best, I think, in a recent podcast with Eric. Okay. <laughs> just take oh, something just from the blue <laughs> box and load it with something into the yellow box. Yeah. You're good. I you're got that from him, I think. Subconsciously yeah. I've heard him say that before, so that's probably where I yeah. got it from and no, then I I, I will say, though, with these big diameter barrels, cut rifle barrel from a you know, well-known manufacturer chambered by a competent gunsmith in a you know, BR family cartridge, you're, you can't go wrong. It, it's it's going to be what it is. I mean, the last time I did a load development for my BR, um, across a full grain of powder, I had the same group every two-tenths, and my group didn't migrate. Now, my yeah. velocity increased, sure. My velocity was, you know, 50 to 70 feet per second faster across the course of it. But what does it really matter if your point of impact in your group size is all sub-half MOA, you know? Worst yeah. case. Worst case, it, was ha- it wasn't even half. 
our aggregate was like 0.39 or point, 0.41 inches at 100 yards yeah uh, across 200 groups for our load development or not our load yeah, of our barrel break to 0.41 yeah for four so different barrels I guess what, what are we trying to do here um, I think that I, I don't know I listened to the Hornady one I've, I've definitely you know had conversations with Eric and talked to him on the tuner stuff and I don't think any one of those are wrong I don't think anybody has like a totally wrong perspective they just have different experiences and I feel like um, you can make anything work if you <laughs> under the right set of circumstances. Yeah. But on the same token, why do we? Why do I need to try so hard to do what I do? I don't. I don't want to, and I don't have to. Yeah. I think this is a good topic. But it's a good question. But the question sort of normally becomes, "Hey, how do I shoot smaller groups?" Well, you're telling me I can't shoot smaller groups. Tuning doesn't work. This doesn't work where low development doesn't work or this method in low development doesn't work. So what do I have to do? I'm like, well, let me just reframe the question. Have you just loaded something that was safe minus two grains and just sent it and see, like, is it an acceptable speed for the sport you're shooting? Is Are the groups decent if you just shot five or 10 or 20 of them? Like, if they're good, if they're like half half them away, well, if you're coming from a three MOA gun, I'd probably stick with that for a while. Um, if you're coming from a half minute gun and it's still shooting half, well, it's no worse than what you have. It seem, if it's find some other variable that seems more consistent. If you were coming from like a quarter MOA barrel, which is frankly a unicorn, um, they're yeah. very hard to find in our sport and, and, what, and shoot even to shoot at that. You, you have to temper the expectation of what's really acceptable for what you need in order to just stop tinkering with that and just go do something else that's probably costing you more points, especially within our game, PRS. Ventress, totally different sport. F class totally different in that sense as well, and I'm not trying to get either. I'm not trying to get too deep in the weeds either. But I think there's yeah. a difference of opinion on what a, let's just call it a quarter MOA gun actually is. Yep. Like some people say, a quarter MOA gun is a gun that has shot a quarter MOA group, and some yep. people say that it's the that's their average group, the yep. average group size over X amount of rounds. Like nobody's wrong. And, and some it's people just say a different it never definition. shoots larger than that. Yeah. Like and that's oh again, that's an ES I know that's yeah that, that's why I'm like that doesn't yeah happen. I don't think that's possible but um, you know my so my personal targets I think we've already said it in some recent podcasts but we'll we'll cover it now I know that my gun and my system are capable of shooting 0.4 or better on average like again I have five five shot groups I'll shoot an average of around a 0.4 I may be a 0.5 I may be a 0.3 when I do a bunch of those tests over time so if I know that I, Shooting a couple of groups around a point four, plus or minus a tenth, dude. I, I'm good enough. I'm so certain that that's going to achieve the accuracy I need over time, or the precision I should say over time, that I don't even bother doing anything else to the load at all. Like legit, nothing more. Because I'm not focused on that. Generally speaking, I'm only focused on staying sub half is ninety percent of the time. The other half, I'm away. <clears throat> happens from fundamentals. So hitting a one-inch circle at 100 yards is not easy. It's not easy to do, you know, 90-plus percent of the time. I don't mean that, like, you go to your range and you you sit down on the bench and you just get dialed in, you shoot off on something else, and then you come back and you plunk your one-inch group on the little one-inch dot. You're like, see, it was easy. Uh, Wait a minute. You said that it's not easy to hit a one-inch dot at 100 yards every time? Correct. 
for five shots and have every single bullet on it. Like, just cold. And that's why I was caveating this. If I go shoot in zero and I haven't shot anything, do you know where it is before? And then do you break the position and rebuild the position and shoot another? Do you do it prone? Do you do it off a bench? Do you do it off a bag? Do you do it off a tripod? Like, doing that consistently is very, very difficult. But I know that that's my extreme. I, I know I should have a bullet touching a one-inch circle that actually technically makes the gun like a 1.1 MOA gun in all circumstances. But I know that the group centers move around my point of aim with different days where I'm wearing different clothes or I'm not as in tune with the rifle and I'm not shooting well or I'm yanking the trigger. Who knows what? I mean, any of those things. Um, so I, I'm good with basically plus or minus half MOA in any direction, i.e. 0.15 mils in any direction, more or less, from some point of aim. As long as my bullets are landing within that cone, I am 100% acceptable with that. That doesn't mean that I'm going to shoot a 1MOA group. What it means is I am likely going to have my rounds impacting within, you know, half MOA of my point of aim on calm conditions or do in practice at 100 yards. That's, but they might still group half, you know, half MOA, just not their one time they'll be to the left then they'll be low and left then they might be high and right all right i see what you're saying that's that's what i'm trying to say so my rifle is a one moa rifle my system is a one moa system my gun can shoot and i can shoot multiple half moa groups or smaller but i don't consider that to be my acceptable precision that's just what the gun can do put that's good enough the load is doing it now i'm going to move on and go see how i can work on me Mm -hmm. so that was a longer answer to that, but um, the simple method, I guess we didn't actually talk about a method, so what do I do? If I find a load on, I'm trying to back off probably 100 plus feet per second, So, and I mean a broken in barrel, several hundred rounds old, I'm backing off a minimum of 100 from the maximum that that length of barrel and powder combination are supposed to be able to achieve. So let's say a dasher. I know guys will run dashers 2,900 to 2,950. Um, at a you know, on the low end, so to speak, of like the fastest guys who really push them, I want to be 2,800 feet per second to 2,850. If I'm really dirty and I have a lot of fouling in the barrel, I don't want it to be close much over 2,850. That gives me a hundred feet per second away from even the close tide of pressure. Uh, I would back off more rifles from powder, generally speaking, and just make your life easier. Less recoil, less powder, less components used, um, and I generally find that groups shoot better if they have. Guns shoot better if they have smaller powder charges with faster powders. So that's just my two cents. Okay. Um, anything you want to add or no? Well, you didn't really talk about a development. You just said, hey, no, just I, do this. I, well, I mean, literally, that's my development process, to be okay. perfectly blunt. It's back off 100 to 150 feet per second, I mean, on a stabilized barrel. So that means I'm 200 plus feet a second. My brand new barrels start... If I can get a load for the first 50 rounds that's like, say, 2750, I know that it'll end up around 2800 to 2850 when it's done. So once I hit 2750 for a couple rounds early on, I'm going to run that for 200 to 300 rounds. If it ends between 2800 and 2850 on a dasher, I'm literally done. Mm -hmm. Seating depth is 40 to 60 thousandths off the lands at a minimum, usually 60, uh, and just keep sending it. And I've tested, I'll, and then to, to process it, I'll just test 60. Yep, that shot well. Go to 120. Yep, that shoots well. Well, that means everywhere in between, if I really feel so inclined, I can just shoot 
you know, every 20 thousandths to make sure that they're not like magically 3M away, but they won't be. I guess I've never seen that. So I'm yeah. just going to leave it alone and, and just go shoot the barrel. And I guess well. I, I'm, I'm more, I'm not going to say critical. I'm just, I'm more like nervous and cautious about just picking a number and just running with it. You've seen my, I'll send you. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> I send you groups and I'm like, I don't even know why I do this because they're all acceptable. <laughs> they are. They are all acceptable. Yeah. And then what, but what I try to do is just pick a powder charge that has um, like a, a five to six tenth window where the point of center of the group does not change. And based on your explanation of laying down five groups standing up and in, in between them, you you know, your group center could migrate anyway. So I, yeah. I guess I don't even know why I do it. I just do it because it's just what I do. It's not wasting a lot of components, and I need to get some rounds on the barrel anyway. So, um, yeah, I just I shoot across the full grain of powder with two tenths at a time, five round groups, and I'll do that a couple times. Um, and I just want to see as that powder charge increases, is there anything weird happening with the my, the center of the the groups? And I just pick something that looks like it doesn't change. Honestly, I've been leaning towards the low side of that because I figured if if velocity starts increasing anymore for any reason, pr- pressure increases or whatever, then I'll stay in that same point of impact. I, I'll, I'll gain velocity, but my point of impact won't change. So, yeah, I mean, but it's probably a waste of time. Uh, well, and I'm not saying it is a waste of time, but I do think that generally we, I mean, we've already said it in so many words. We focus more of our time on developing us than mm-hmm. we do developing loads. For sure. And I think if, if it was nine to one, if you focused on you, to your load at a nine to one ratio, I you, think you'd be much you farther are ahead, faster. way further ahead. Yep, I and agree. I swear, if I if so, if somebody handed you know young me a one MOA rifle and ammo and said you don't have anything but this to shoot, you have here's fifty thousand rounds. All you, you can go do you now. That's it. I would be a far better shooter than I would having spent as much time as I did behind their loading bench instead of behind the rifle. Yeah. So that said, that's. One more caveat that. to that. Mm-hmm. You said reloading bench. Um, making good, you know, processing brass efficiently and, and processing it well will help control your group size as well. So I think virgin brass shoots great these days, and it'd be nice if we could all shoot virgin brass. But um, I'm not one of the camp that says that brass has to be fire formed to shoot well. Um, I think that a lot of people get into this sport and get into reloading and think that just because they're quote-unquote reloading, they're going to make better ammo than, you know, they could. And I think a lot of it falls short in the brass prep area. So go back and listen to our brass prep episode. It's rather simple. Uh, we might do a follow-up to it later on anyway, but I feel like, yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm not saying people are doing it wrong. They might be doing it inconsistently uh, from from case to case, which could be causing variation in their group size, and then they're going to be making assumptions in their low development because they got brass that's different. Yep, that's possible. Um, all right, Jesse, moving on. Jesse Skosik. I think it's Skosik or Skokik. I'm not sure which. But um, thanks for the message, Jesse. The mental game and a winning mindset. That's a pretty big topic, and it's pretty broad. Uh, we definitely want to do a couple more episodes you know, over the coming, coming months on you know, mindset, um, we recorded a couple that we'll release probably somewhere around this time frame too. 
Yeah, I was. I had him in mind. I had that question in mind when we were recording those. So yep. Okay. We so didn't you call might him have already, out, but might have already heard him. Yeah. We'll see. Um, so we'll we'll keep doing more though. We are. It is on our, you know, docket this year to keep talking about those things because mental management is a huge component of what we do. Um, yep. You got one more that's less than five minutes because we're pretty close to home. Five. Yeah. Okay. This was actually a good one. Uh, Dan Crank. We just saw him at a match oh, yeah. in a couple of week a couple of weeks ago. Um, what spare extra gear tools, rifle parts do you bring? Anything from triggers, firing pins, bags, punches, levels, mags, batteries. Sky is the limit. What spare stuff do you bring to a match? Um, Everything I need. I know. Great question. But this one is actually kind of ex- a really good one. So in my pack, I carry in my pack around my person um, or in my call it car pack in our van. I have my obviously my standard match gear, bag, rifle, ammo, all that stuff. But my rain kit, like the stuff I need to get through a rainy day to protect my bag, my rifle, my optic, clean water off of it with a little blower bulb. That's I part think, one. I think he means like spare I know, rifle Going gear. into that stuff. But okay. This is literally, I mean, I just, I can run down it for the okay. stuff that I always carry cool. with me, which is the same thing that you carry with you. So right. um, on the equipment side, I always have a set of send it level, or excuse me, fix it sticks. So it, it does, the old. Essentially, they will fix everything or take off or put on any screw on my rifle with two or three exceptions. Those are the huge bolts that you don't actually have to do anything with because you need a massive Allen, um, and they should always be tight, except that one time when they weren't. Um, I also have, uh, when there's not an Allen in the fix-it-stick key that, that's the right one, I just buy the independent and stick it in my little pouch with yep. it yeah. so that I have all of the keys I need to fix any bolt on my rifle at any given time. Um, in addition to that, the spare kit, I have a Leatherman kit tool that always goes with me in my match pack. Then I have a spare parts kit that includes AA batteries for my Kestrel, AAA battery for my, well, it's actually for Miles to Matches ear sets, headsets. Then I have a lighter in there uh, and tape, like spare tape. And I'm trying to remember, there's one more thing, like, oh, it's a little roll of, like, the guts of a paracord. And I know that sounds like a little survival kiddish, but um, it's there just because I don't know. And it takes up literally no weight, one ounce, maybe. So I, I'm fine having it in there. And there have been times where I needed something to tie to something else, so I use those paracord guts. Uh, and my, the next one, I bring two spare triggers and a spare bolt along with two spare, well, I have a spare send it with me. Um, and usually I have a backup and I have a spare so that, um, if I'm ever at a match and I know somebody has, has someone go down, I always have one, but I have a trigger with me as well. Um, you know, trigger tech was kind enough, you know, they sponsor both Chad and I, uh, they were kind enough to send us a couple. So we always have a couple triggers with us. Usually at least one, sometimes two. One is for my personal rifle as a backup. The other is like a uh, backup if I need to fix somebody else's trigger. And hangers for my impacts. So I can swap things out and literally pull the action, two screws, pop trigger in, back in action. Mm-hmm. So the spare bolt has a spare firing pin. So I yep. can't think of anything else that's in my pack that would be a, considered a spare. So anything I forgot. No, I th- this. So I talked to Dan at the match, and he he had a firing pin break, and he said luckily it was on training day. So he he had a spare one, and then he he got a backup. So I would say just if you can, and it's within your budget, just have a whole complete bolt assembly. 
because that has everything you need and it's much quicker and easier to swap that out than it is to rebuild your fire mm-hmm. control group at a match. I know it adds weight and it's like, you know, four or 500 bucks, but um, it's a quick insurance policy. Um, spare trigger, and I have a punch for my trigger because my um, trigger is assembled with pins. Yep. Um, you know, the, the fixes sticks, the send it level, all batteries for everything times two. Um, spare timer, uh, crush it timer. Oh, yeah. I have a spare crush it as well. Yep. And um, anything that you think could break. I mean, a lot of this stuff comes from a failure that you have experience with firsthand or you've seen somebody else. Um, that's the better way to find out. If you see somebody else fail, then you should <laughs> proactively put that in your kit. Yep. I've whittled stuff out of my kit um, and added stuff in. Um, I, I carry an extra mag. Uh, I have um, definitely extra bags. You know, I have a couple bags that if one of them goes down, I could get through the match without it. But it's easy to share bags these days. So, I think that's I think that's about it. I mean, it's yeah, not crazy. One. It's not as crazy as you would think. No, there's actually one tip on like gear that's kind of weird. But my backup bag and all my spare little bags, like if I have a the gray ops with the little plate bag. I think I have the mini gun plate V2 with uh, with their bat, with the Armageddon gear bag that goes on it, as well as a X-Wing, and I have another Schmedium that goes in there. So I have a plus one Schmedium, X-Wing, and the Grey Ops plate, plate bag. The three other bags, so my primary bag um, is in it just standing on its own on the top of my bag. However, the Schmedium is in a Ziploc bag, and then the other two bags are also in a Ziploc bag because when I'm putting them in my pack they always go to the bottom because i use them the least then the next thing would be my ammo the next thing is my plus one which i use the most so so what's the deal with the plastic bags when my bag hits the ground when it's wet it doesn't soak up the water mm-hmm. into the bag which or it will but the the actual bags themselves meaning the rear bags do not soak up water because they're in a ziploc yeah so i it's just leave idea. them in there because there's no reason to have those out uh, otherwise exposed, and if your bag happens to get soaked, like wet, dewy mornings, cold ground, muddy days where your pack is just beat, yeah, your bags aren't soaked, and you always have a dry bag. So that's why I, I do that now. I thought maybe it's because they slide in and out of there better, which honestly would be sweet. That would be it. Awesome, would it would be helpful? I'm just saying. Do you find that they slide in and oh, out they, of I your mean, bag yeah, if easier? If you need to than, get them, you just literally just grab one, and you can feel. Just I grab the wrong yeah, one. Frequently. I think I might try that. Just to keep my bags, the ones that go to the bottom, keep them sliding in and out easier. Oh, they slide in and out, all right. Like, always, <laughs> you just, you don't know which one you're grabbing, so you go to pull something and, whoopsie. Yeah, but, I'm trying to think of anything else, like miscellaneous carabiners that I can clip stuff on the outside, just little stuff like that. But as far as maintenance items for the rifle, for me, it's just oh, a bolt and a trigger yeah. and, and fix the sticks. Yeah, it's pretty, it is actually pretty basic. Um, the bolt is actually one of the things that almost like best laid plans i had a firing pin fail and i didn't know it and so the next time i had that i immediately figured out that i what i thought it was and i remember i had it sticking out of the corner of my pack so i sprinted up from firing line ran 15 yards to my left grabbed my bolt sprinted back over these are all like there's like eight shooters on the line like at k&m and they're all stacked like peanuts all the way across and i was high stepping over all of them grab my bolt out of my bag, high step all the way back and like leap over them, hit the ground, pull a bolt, shove a bolt in. And this is on the clock. And I ended up 
not ha- it didn't work because well I had another <laughs> issue. It's I, essentially so, so, a failure led to a failure, but it was a great idea. So what's with the uh, shooter must start with all gear in hand rule then? Well, I don't know if that I don't know how that one worked. I didn't get another shot off, so that one, in that case it didn't matter. Well, a for a for effort, but it was pretty cool. I spun the bolt as I grabbed it. It was in a weird place in my pack, so as I picked it up out of the pack, it spun oh, it and decocked it. Control, yeah. So yeah, I actually fixed it. It was the right thing to do. I just spun the firing pin down and I didn't I hadn't practiced that so I didn't know what it felt like so it when I went to close it it still stopped I'm like I, 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 I was just completely dumbfounded and now I know yeah if I feel that early stop oopsie pull it back out and spin the spin, cock the hammer again so cock the firing piece okay well cool. that's all the time we have for today folks yep. boys and girls so tune in next time same time same time same place actually it might not be We'll be at a different it's gonna place. Be the same. You'll be at the same time. Yeah. Well, maybe not because they don't. Maybe, they might listen to some other times. Yeah, but it'll so, be at six a.m. on a Thursday. First available. So you will. Eastern. You will have had a chance to have listened to us at the same time. Where you are is up to you. Should you choose to accept? Yeah, this message will self-destruct in five, four, three, two.